episode and uh, thanks for tuning in. This is uh, this is Adrian speaking and I'm here with Helen Hello. and this is the first episode that we've done that we're not in person. Yeah. So, um, the dynamic might come out as a little bit different <laughs> for people listening. Yeah, we're kind of across but, the internet. Yeah. <laughs> but if um, if you haven't heard to the podcast before um i'm a musician from mexico helen is a director from ireland northern mm-hmm. ireland That's and right. um yeah we're just interested in talking about movies we're not experts but we try to have a lacanian and hegelian readings of um what whatever movies that we're looking at so this is us uh we're gonna try to talk about this movie that you told me about um maybe when i was in la earlier in the yeah. year and um i had never seen it i yeah. liked this director but it was one of his earlier movies i think it's its second feature yeah and, uh, it's on sundays by denis villeneuve is it 2011 i think yeah something like 2010 2011 or something that i can't believe i introduced you this to you i feel like i feel proud of myself have you seen the other one that he did about the shooting no, I haven't. I think it's called. Um, I forgot what it's called. It was, I think it's the, some shooting that maybe was in Canada, and uh, uh, it's actually the brother, the actor yeah. that does the brother mm-hmm. like role. He he does. Um, he's the, like the main guy. He's the shooter. Oh no, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. But this is obviously it's um French language film, but like Quebecois. I always find Quebecois like hilariously. It's obviously, I mean, like any accent sounds weird to a given person, but like, yeah, it's such, and they have like really, um, there's a term like, uh, like a calc, uh, which is a, um, a non-translation translation where you take a direct phrase from a language and just like impose it on the other language. And because obviously Quebec is right close to the American border and there's loads of like Americanisms that infiltrate the language. So they say things like, I mean, this is from uh, my college ling- linguistics school, so I could be wrong, and this could be like twenty years out of date. But um, like to to park your car in French is stationné. Is that you? Yeah. Uh, well, you just say stationné, and in uh, Quebecois, it's apparently parquer son char, and they like have this yeah. American accent, or they say like <laughs> so a can of beans. Apparently, so in in French, French is une boîte d'haricots. And in yeah. uh, Quebecois, it's like un can de beans. Apparently, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I have nothing like, to say. <laughs> I don't know. Like, you're like, I just you're like a you're like a like an international woman. I feel like I so know. bland when it comes to that kind of stuff because well, like you know, a, I just grew like up a... in in like South US, like just mm-hmm. in Phoenix and uh, El Paso, just like the most boring. It's like really? the asshole of the US. <laughs> I have to say, I spent some time in Phoenix a number of years ago, and it was like very, when I went the first day, I was like, I'm going to get the public transport and go to the city center and like visit the monuments and go to a cafe. And I literally got on like a tram and it ended up for like two hours just going nowhere. And I was like, where's the nearest Whole Foods? And people were like, "Ah, ha, 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 ha. what are you doing? You know, there's like nothing there. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think the most exciting place where i lived yeah. was in um italy yeah. we lived in siena for 
I think a few years. I'm not sorry, a few months. I think yeah. five months we spent in there. That's cool. And it was pretty cool. That's I cool. wish I could do that again. You were saying well, I told the you the other day, so like, yeah. yeah, yeah, that I might retire in Italy. I went to this really nice yeah. town called Pistoia. Yeah. And I just, I loved it. You it's fell in love with like it. A, but it's like, Adrian, you're, what, 29 next week? So you've got a long time. <laughs> I'm already thinking about when I retire. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I don't know if we'll ever be able to retire. Well, may, I don't know. Maybe you will. I always think I'm just never going to be able to retire. It'll just. Although I don't know if even I would want to retire. Like, I like work. In well, I just way, don't but. think that. I, just, I, I don't think that re- when I say retire, yeah. I just don't think that it means not doing anything. Yeah, that's true. It's, yeah. just, it's more just like, you know, I don't answer to anyone. Yeah. You know? Doing what you want. Because even, like, I mean, it's, it's sort of like this master slave thing, because even mm-hmm. if you're don't answer to anyone, like if you're the boss, mm-hmm. yeah. you still have to answer to the people that you employ. You do. And, I know uh, you absolutely do. It's like very, I mean, the whole capitalist system is stressful on everybody who is employed yeah. or an employer, it's just all... Yeah. Oh my God, did I tell you talking about capitalism the other day? I was in Barnes & Noble and I think I showed you the, the pictures, but Todd talked a lot about this um, oh, yeah, when he was yeah, over yeah. in Belfast about how capitalism like blandifies everybody in a protest against the kind of like milky everything of everything <laughs> in capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Identity politics, because it's like, please, I'm different. But um, yeah, I was at the Barnes & Noble's at Barnes and Nobles, Barnes and Noble, and it was like the section, I guess like the biggest section now is self-help. And it's kind of sad because you go mm. to Barnes and Noble, which I guess, you know, all bookstores just because they have to, have to just stock a lot of rubbish now. Yeah. And it's, um, there were like, I kid you not, tens of titles with a swear word in the title, like um, the magical art of not giving a fuck or F star asterisk ck you know and it was like the same i just didn't get the one that was like unfuck yourself yeah what what the hell i think it was like um people or like (laughs) Like if you're fucked up and you like unfuck up yourself i guess i think it was about like um self-sabotage and like getting out of your own way and stuff she's hilarious thing but yeah i don't know anyway it's kind of depressing it's probably all those are like I think, do you think that maybe probably all of those are about just being more individualist? Like, don't care what people yeah, say. Yeah, no, like, exactly. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a lot of it is this women stuff, women books directed at women being like, be more of an asshole, you know, or like, there was one don't actually smile. titled, I have yeah. a, I have a picture, pictures on my phone. There was one that was like, um, oh yeah, the good girl's guide to being a, and then it says nicer, calmer, more patient. It's crossed out. A dick. Mm-hmm. And obviously asterisk yeah. instead of the eye. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, I think it's like... Sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say about like how now there's all these protest movements that people possibly have the illusion that it's they're different or they're, they're actively resisting something or they're protesting something. But capitalism has managed to uh, capitalize on being different or out of the ordinary or like being rebellious. Like the unicorn, I think, is the ultimate sign of neoliberalism it's like i'm special i'm different i'm unique you know it's like (laughs) no (laughs) you know you see it everywhere it's just hilarious but what do you think about the that whole thing of like you know your woman don't smile like smile is it's almost like uh, it's an injunction right if just Mm -hmm. like don't smile if you're a woman participate in this whole far universalist sort of struggle to not 
to not smile anymore. Who is that? I was talking to Priscilla the other day about that. Oh, you never heard about that? It's just like, yeah, that women are always expected to seem sweet and to just be like really affable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the sort of like the basic component of that is just a Mm -hmm. smile. Yeah. So there's all these like, I think there's a movement of just like women encouraging each other not to smile. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's funny because it's like obviously a protest is by definition a non-dialectical no and it requires the thing it's protesting against to, against to exist. It's not radical yeah. in any way. But anyway, yeah. I don't know. I know, so basically talking about self-help in the self-help books to segue a bit to the film, um, the, the film is it's kind of like a Greek tragedy myth structure with a kind of like detective story element in a war film. And mm-hmm. I guess it kind of like, it's interesting in terms of psychoanalysis because um, the, seg- the great segue is that self-help is different from psychoanalysis. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. but psychoanalysis is like the non-answer answer or like the non-help help. As in, there's nothing that's going to change your life. Uh, there's no answer out there. There's no great all-knowing being that there's no kind of like... Uh, the analyst doesn't know anything exactly yeah. and so mm-hmm. obviously that's kind of the different from self-help because self-help is like do this and you'll be better um but having said all that if we know that psychoanalysis is like a non-answer answer and there isn't an answer can we not just get to the point of being like yeah there's no answer and just like get it intellectually without having to go through for example psychoanalysis for years and i was talking to a friend uh, who's reading in depth like a Zizek book at the moment, and it's about is the sublime object of ideology and about how ideology functions, and about how we can't just experience it intellectually, like the lesson that there's no answer. We have to go through our own personal myths and fantasies. So, um, I guess in psychoanalysis, like the fantasy or the like. So in in capitalism, the fantasy is like money. Like the myth is like money. Mm-hmm. Um, for Levy, Claude Levi Strauss, who's this really good anthropologist, it's the idea of myth. And in mm-hmm. psychoanalysis, it's like dreams and fantasies. And like, so the dream and fantasy is like your own personal, like reaction formation, understanding of like how you are in language. And so yeah. it's like this arbitrary thing that you like create to like vaguely understand the world. But like the fantasy or the dream is analyzed to reveal a message. And the message isn't like, oh, you're dreaming about buying houses. You want to have a child or something, or you're dreaming about carrots. You want to have a rabbit. Like there's no like answer in the dream. The, like when you analyze a dream, it's like totally messy and there's multiple, multiple desires and meanings there at the same time. And basically the message of the dream is like, there's no answer, <laughs> but yeah. you have to go through the analyzing of your own particular fantasy or dream in order to come to that realization. I probably haven't. Which might sound, which myself. might sound maybe sort of uh, nihilistic or <laughs> that there's really nothing there. Yeah. But actually I think it's the opposite yeah. because I've, I've talked to a few people about sort of the, the psychoanalytic process that mm-hmm. you go through when you go into your sessions mm-hmm. and engaging with this whole dialogue with the analyst and 
one of the things that they say is just like, well, what's next for your life? Yeah. Like what comes what comes after you've gone through all of these changes? Mm-hmm. What do you get out of it? Yeah. And I think that maybe psychoanalysis is an answer that is unlikely mm-hmm. and and sets you free. It's it's kind of emancipatory because mm-hmm. you stop asking that question or it stops mattering. Yeah. Like you stop looking for what's the next big thing in my yeah. life yeah, or yeah. What, what can I see as sort of like the motor that gives meaning to my life in a yeah. way that really maybe is the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The way that we just become sort of vacuums yeah. for things that will give us momentary meaning is precisely, I think, that the problem. Yeah. And, and being okay with not having an attachment that is that strong and, mm-hmm. that, that, and that brings that much, you know, supposed stability to your yeah. life. Like, learning to live without that yeah. is, it's a very freeing thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's, it kind of plays into the, the film because the film, the, the film is about... Um, a mother uh, in Canada who's from a Middle Eastern country originally who dies. And it comes to light that she's had, a, well, she, she was a political refugee, but she's had like a really traumatic life. And after she dies, she tells her twin adult children that she can't really be laid to rest. She can't have a headstone until they learn what has happened in the past to kind of like close, close the loop. And she sends them on a quest, she gives, um, a lawyer who was her, her employer, but her lawyer who is enacting her will, she gives a letter to her daughter and her son, twins. And one of them gets a letter saying, give this to your father. And the other one gets a letter saying, give this to your brother. And mm-hmm. within, after, so these two people are set on a journey of finding out who their father and who their brother are. And This is spoiler heavy, by the way. It's yes, extremely heavy. And in discovering that, there's this real kind of... Um, extremely powerful familial narrative that comes to light that she could have just told them but it's like why does she send them on the journey to discover it rather than just telling them and it's almost like the journey in and of itself is all of the meaning and carries all of the weight and you because of affect like the way we are as humans like we attach to meaning to stuff because I'm not an expert on how affect functions, but it's really like how you sensorially, emotionally experience life. You know, the the like act of living is so, so powerful. So you have to go through the personal narrative and really feel it as affect to like get the quote unquote lesson of it, if that makes sense. Well, the thing is that like, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is that like, if we, if we hear the truth, Mm-hmm. immediately and it yeah. and it just hits us without some kind of uh, process that we mm-hmm. go through um it doesn't do anything yeah. i think that it becomes like a real that we can't really tarry with so we just repress it mm-hmm. and it, suffer the consequences throughout the rest of our lives yeah. of just trying to come to grips with that truth mm-hmm. but i think that the other way is the, the other way is different because you go through you live it out you don't just understand it. And I think that that's one of the other things about psychoanalysis is that understanding is secondary. Mm-hmm. Living is primary. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. when you understand, because you can understand and like actually the analyst, if he knows, can tell you like what your problems are. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, you, it's that you want to sleep with your mother or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if you if you hear that outright, it won't really have an effect on you. Yeah. Uh, you have to live in a way that you get to that mm-hmm. eventually. 
mm-hmm. but it, it's almost just it becomes kind of ev- or obvious at the end. Yeah. And I really do think that real psychoanalysis is not about knowing the truth. It's about yeah. getting to it. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm always like, oh, if I just read lots of Freud or whatever, I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to pay for a therapist. <laughs> and it's like, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really work like that. It's funny because like Todd's book that I found so powerful, Capitalism and Desire, almost that was, I felt like that was so transformational because by dint of, certain things being explained in a really like life relevant way you can really understand how it applies to your personal narrative but like very dry theoretical freud is not going to really help you you know you'd be like or like reading like bruce fink or something or like an introduction to lacan you'd be like oh that's interesting but yeah it doesn't really it doesn't really um resonate in the same way um well one of the other ways that it one of the other ways that the reason why you need the session is because mm-hmm. you need two people talking to each other. Yeah. And I think one of the things that for the analysis becomes sort of like existentially meaningful is when you hear your analyst have a slip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's happened to me already a couple of times. Really? And uh, yeah, you start to get into this whole, I mean, it, it allows for transference to, to be a little bit easier because yeah. you start to wonder what the slip means. Yeah. And it because you know, the, the, the analyst becomes like even more enigmatic to you. So oh yeah, because he starts to be like, for, yeah. what is he thinking? It's like you know, um, yeah, exactly. When you have, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but as, as a, when you have like a teacher at school and they're this kind of like um, non-person person, and I actually after I left college, I taught at like a boarding school for a couple of years, and um, everybody lived on site, and it was almost like. The fact that the teachers lived there and you were like living in apartments or houses in between the boarding houses i think the fact that they knew like a tiny bit about your private life was even more intriguing but you were like this kind of like um unreal being you know and i think Mm -hmm. teachers are obviously like that there's obviously like a lot of transference that goes on in that kind of relationship but it was always like um you know, if you had like a projector in the classroom and your your email came up on your computer, it would always be like, oh my God. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but uh, it's always intriguing. You, yeah, when it's like mystery. Yeah, do you, I was going to ask you, um, you were talking about right now about Greek tragedy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, do you think that, I'm about to go into Judith Butler language territory here, but oh, right. do you think that, it's not really my cup of tea, but okay. I, I don't even <laughs> want to use the, the words. But do you think that maybe Greek tragedy is the best sort of representation of or the more pure representation of, of just regular life? Because it, hmm. to the way that I understand Greek tragedy or Greek mm-hmm. comedy is that you go through a struggle mm-hmm. and in the end, things sort of stay the same. Yeah, I know. It's interesting because like uh, I have to say this is like I actually... I don't know what the Mexican equivalent of A-levels is, but um, in the UK... The, the when, equivalent of what? A-level. Uh, it's like your okay. final, mm-hmm. like when you leave high school, you do like three or four subjects and you like specialize in. And one of the ones I did at high school was ancient Greek. <laughs> and I literally have forgotten everything. <laughs> but obviously we, we studied all of the like Greek tragedies. And I'm literally going to sound like a mm-hmm. real idiot because I've forgotten everything. But... Um, I have to say, I mean, it's interesting that Denny Villeneuve chose this script to direct. I don't know if he chose it, but I watched an interview and it sounds like he was interested in this play. And it was it's a play written by a um, Canadian guy of like Middle Eastern origin originally. And he all of his work 
has a kind of like like non-preachy moralistic element to it but it's funny because it's like as you say the moral is like what's the moral it's kind of like really depressing but it's um it has some kind of like powerful uh resonant um like tragic element and um i guess greek tragedies do that but yeah i mean i don't know they they do i'm just thinking about like particular greek tragedies they do always end up in like basically i mean it's the tragedies in the world there's obviously lots of like comedy and stuff but in um yeah and that was the judith butler parts like yeah that was the judith butler part like do you think that life is performative life (laughs) is performative uh, greek a greek tragedy no, 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 of Greek tragedy specifically. Greek tragedy is like performative of the way life is. Backwards. Like if it's the most, maybe not the highest mm-hmm. sort of like um, understanding of life. Yeah. But really, it's that. It's. I mean, what we're we talking about psychoanalysis that yeah. you can go through a whole process, but really it's not so that you can radically change your life, mm-hmm. but so that mm-hmm. you can learn to to accept your life. You know, absolutely, absolutely. So it's, um, I mean, this is the kind of like films that I like to make. It's like you use the story form because the the that kind of, you know, I don't know, like a story is, or a film or a piece of fiction is necessarily has a moral to it. But like, I feel like the work that I do has like a non-moral moral. Like it's, it's um, what's the word? It's kind of like an acceptance of life or a kind of, begins with a C. I always forget what this word is. It's not convalescence. It's not. <laughs> a word that begins with uh-huh. C that means like, ah, uh, not comfort. Conflation? Consolation, yeah, consolation. But you know, oh, mm-hmm. you do require a kind of like um, a myth form in order for that to kind of resonate with you. Um, yeah. So yeah, but the Greek. How is that? How is that different from like Jung stuff? No, because I think Jung is like the the thing is that Jung has like his message is that the unconscious is a compensatory mechanism, and that there is a message there for you to improve your life, and that's basically all the kind of conventional Western uh, story form is that that you can improve yourself in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. But I guess yeah, the Greek form is more yeah consolation con- consolatory rather than seeking you know yeah it was funny because like when peterson in the debate he mm-hmm. talked about psychoanalysis he mm-hmm. gave sort of like his definition of it yeah it was basically just like self-help yeah no it's ridiculous it like was the like, opposite of self-help you know you yeah the analyst tells you you know he he guides you through the traumas of yeah. your past yeah. and then you sort of like analyze that mm-hmm. and then that helps you to be a better person mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like isn't the whole point of psychoanalysis that you start becoming less and less important and yeah. that your past starts becoming less and less I know, less exactly. Important. You come to the point where you like, you matter nothing in this world. <laughs> no one, like, yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's like probably the greatest benefit is for you not to exist, you know, um, to be sat- really nihilistic yeah. about it. But actually, no, the, the self-improvement aspect is that you can actually enjoy your, enjoy your circumstance when you cease to seek uh, an answer or cease to sacrifice yourself or seek to revolve around uh, or continue to revolve around death drive so you can actually like yeah. properly enjoy your life um when you're not trying to escape from something and i think 
yeah, self-help kind of encourages people to believe that they're happy by dint of pursuing a goal of happiness or thinking that by going through something you're going to be happy, but it doesn't really work that way. Yeah, happiness only exists in enjoying your dissatisfaction <laughs> and being all right with it, yeah. you know. And that's not to say that like yeah. nice things and nice moments can exist, but kind of in an existential mm-hmm. sense. Um, yeah. Happiness isn't something that's has a futurality to it. Um, but yeah, um, I know, but that's the thing. It's like, I think storytelling is a powerful form because because of this notion of affect and that it in our kind of contemporary scene and under capitalism, it's kind of been hijacked by this kind of like uh, pro- progress as a notion and self-improvement and perfectionism and the idea aggressive that, progress exactly exactly and the idea that, that cusses and <laughs> yeah yeah it's like fuck you uh, yeah no exactly but yeah. that there's some meaning to your existence and like the, that's where you get like joseph campbell and all that kind of stuff but i think the story form can mm. still be used in a freudian sense to um help people to um accept you know their life yeah. as it is um, but yeah, I also have it. So yeah, it is interesting that the, that the film itself has this kind of like mythic Greek tragedy form. And the Greek tragedy often revolves around families. Um, and as you said, like the Judith Butler point that it's kind of like, there's a real truth to Greek tragedy. It's interesting that like Freud took on, you know, the, the story of Oedipus. And also like Jung took yeah. on elect, the Electra story as the Electra complex as well. But yeah, I mean, there's obviously something really kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> powerful to it and the, how it all kind of familial um relations fit together yeah isn't isn't sort of like the greek tragedy something that a, a journey that mm-hmm. a person goes through mm-hmm. that leads them to a realization that is traumatic mm-hmm. or that is sort of uh, revelatory and mm-hmm. some it creates some kind of rupture or an event yeah but that Eventually, they go back to the same place. I'll give you, I can't, I'm not very well versed in Greek stuff, but mm-hmm. I'll give you like a Jewish okay. of, uh, parable. And you probably know it. It's the, the prodigal son that he, actually, Kessler Brunin has this reading of it that mm-hmm. I think is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And he reads it not as a, because, you know, my dad, for example, or just like a lot of pastors here mm-hmm. in, in Latin America and the US, like they love the story of the prodigal son because it's like you go, out and you sin and you do whatever you want and eventually you just come back home yeah and the father is waiting there for you with arms open and mm-hmm. you know it's it's a story about forgiveness really and sort of like the the um, the omnipotence of the father mm-hmm. because all glory goes like back to the father mm-hmm. and it's just like you know he's he's so selfless and he i i also never got that because it's like if you're a father it doesn't matter what Mm -hmm. your son or daughter did Mm -hmm. like whatever they do you just like you want them to come back yeah so i never understood that whole like you know just like the father is admirable because he wants his son back but anyway uh the way that he reads it is that this guy the prodigal son like wants to leave home because maybe things are not right Mm -hmm. at home or he just goes on the journey that just it's like he wants to leave already because you know there's at some point when you're in your life and if you're pay attention to it uh you're gonna go against the father Mm -hmm. and that's sort of like the ritual of like becoming a man yeah i forgot what psychoanalyst said this but it's like if you don't have problems against your father 
you got bigger problems to worry about. Yeah. Uh, so he goes through this, you know, normal thing that he leaves his home and, you know, he, he goes through all of this process. He goes to poverty, through poverty and yeah. whatever. And what happens at the end is that he just decides to go back home. Yeah. He gives up on life. Uh-huh. He gives up on it. Like, he doesn't want to confront life in yeah. poverty and in a struggle. He doesn't want to go through a struggle. So he goes back home and the father, you know, gives him a, a, his gold ring back and puts, like, really nice clothes on him and throws him a big party. And he was, and Kester says, like, that's just, like, it's the worst possible story because mm-hmm. it's a story where the guy finds an event he finds a rupture outside of his house and instead of embracing it and mm-hmm. going through it and building sort of like his own life, mm-hmm. um, he just decides to go back, go yeah. back home, go back yeah. to the womb in, in general. So what do you think about that? Do you see a correlation between that and Greek tragedy? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I really am not well versed in the Bible at all. And I guess, well, the thing is, I mean, I personally would interpret that story that like either way, it's fine. If he goes home, that's totally fine. Or if he embraces the rupture, that's fine. But like, isn't, isn't like, but isn't, I mean, I, I do think that there is something yeah. about, you know, a sort of a struggle against a father. And yeah. I mean, Zizek well, talks about this a lot yeah. when it comes to the Bible specifically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he, he sort of quotes Jesus as saying like, you know, whoever doesn't hate his father and his mother, you know, cannot, does, does not inherit the kingdom of God. And yeah. I think that for Jesus, the kingdom of God was just sort of like this replacement of the state. You know? Yeah. And I, I don't know, I, I don't necessarily mean it in like a familial way, yeah. but more just like, you know, what does the father represent? And it's comfort. I think it's a, it's an inability to so? serve. I think it's maybe the, well, the thing is, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's like one way or I think, I guess, like a symbol can have many different uh, things that it represents, like the father. But so I was just thinking about narrative in the idea of fantasy, narrative, stories, myth. And obviously, um, Lacan talks about les non-dupes the non-duped er. So that like to be in mm-hmm. the world and to be in language is to be like duped to fight by fantasy and by... Uh, the idea that there's some like arbitrary narrative to your life. Um, and in order to enter that, you have to go through, ha ha ha, le nom du père, which obviously play on words, the name of the father. So that non dupe air, the non duped er, and the name of the father are kind of connected. But the name of the father is like, symbolically in that sense, it's like kind of mean, uh, standing in the way of you and your relationship with your mother. And if you don't separate from your mother, then you become like a psychotic and you're not properly like imbued with language and therefore like fantasy and like narrative and stuff. Um, so I guess I've always seen like the figure of the father as like a real meanie. You know? <laughs> and like... Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. I, it, it's just, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure because I think that sort of like... Um... Returning to the father yeah. is, in a sense, sort of yeah. like the accompaniment of wanting to return to the yeah. womb. You know, I see. Um, I actually see what you mean. Yeah, that actually, like, and maybe those two kind of interpretations are correct in that, like, if you return to your father, then, like, that kind of symbolic name of the father hasn't been instantiated properly. I don't know. And I actually think, and I actually think that maybe here the key word is not the father because yeah. i think that's almost sort of like the natural sort of valence of life it's yeah. that 
eventually you will leave the father. Yeah. That's just that's just life. But mm-hmm. returning to the father, yeah. I think that's the key sort of like toxic mm-hmm. element of the mm-hmm. story. Yes, yeah, so family history as a detective story. What mm-hmm. do you have? A, do you have like a any particular thought about like why the story Ansonti is like start uh, is set up like a detective story? Well, I think it's just the way that it's shot. Uh, I think it's sort of like a noir thing to mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's always had that, I think, yeah. you know, in yeah. his in the way that he tells the stories yeah. visually. Um, you know, I think that maybe Prisoners is his most sort of like, you know, I hate to say pure, but I think mm-hmm. I think it's the one that sort of it's more eloquent of like his view and his style because mm-hmm. it's 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 directly. Uh, uh, a detective story mm-hmm. but i just i don't know there's like um you don't know anything you don't know everything because a lot of mm-hmm. movies you're just omniscient and you yeah. know what's yeah, going yeah. on even yeah. though you know the characters don't mm-hmm. and in this one i think there's even a reversal because when it comes to the point where you realize that the father and mm-hmm. the brother are the same person mm-hmm. You you see, uh, I forgot what her name is, but the 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 sister, mm-hmm. um, she's like she gasps, you know, yeah, she's yeah, yeah. like because the brother asks, like, does does one can one and one make one one? Yeah, yeah, no, and, I know. Uh, she gasps, you know, because she gets it, but you, I mean, at least I didn't, yeah. I didn't get it immediately. Yeah, and then it goes into like telling you like yeah. the story of yeah, like. Yeah. So I think that it has this sort of like it keeps you in the dark a little yeah. bit. It doesn't yeah. hold your hand, yeah. and maybe that's. That's yeah, the power of the revelation is certainly stronger, and you do like go along with the with the. It's very experiential with the um, with the, with the twins. I guess it's like there's a couple of things that I was just thinking of, and you know the the thing the thing we worked on the novel Sinisterhood. It has this kind of same element. I mean, it's not a detective story; it's a crime story, but they're kind of similarly structured. And the idea, and I, Denny Villeneuve talks about that: the idea of like coming to an understanding of something, or that families can repeat traumas. And it's only by dint of like bringing something to light that that kind of chain can be broken. And, you know, you have mm. this kind of like cursed family narrative. But the detective story as well, it's like, to me, it's very similar to psychoanalysis, you know, that, yeah, again, you could just find out straight away that this thing had happened. But the peeling back of layers, you know, it's really how we experience like the detective story is almost how we experience the world, you know, Um Mm-hmm. coming to understanding kind of working things out um but yeah do you have do you have any like thoughts on war films do you like war films um no i don't think yeah. I, I don't really like i don't really like war films i can't remember one that i saw that because you you mentioned that you really like dunkirk and maybe that's <laughs> yeah i did like it yeah <laughs> i think what it is i don't yeah. like the aesthetic yeah i don't yeah, like yeah. the colors and like for example everybody everybody loved uh breaking bad yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just like, I it was okay to me. I, mm. I wasn't like completely super into it. Yeah. And I think it had to do with the aesthetic. Yeah. I don't like the sort of like New Mexico, uh, yeah, southwestern yeah. part yeah. of like the US. Yeah. <laughs> it's very important to me like to have sort of like a look that mm-hmm. that you can invest yourself in. And yeah. I, I didn't really like that. And yeah. it's the same with, with army stuff. It's just mm-hmm. like, I don't know, the way that, 
the way that the movies look like the, yeah. the, the, the green the green and the, and the brown and and yeah i know there's certainly like aesthetics are like an emergent of like the like thematic properties of something itself but i have to say i do love war films just because well there's various reasons like first of all it's this kind of experiencing of reality in such an intense way and obviously the film medium is like really visceral and so you really it's kind of like transporting you to an you know, certainly in the past, or whatever, people experienced war a lot more than we do now. And I just find it like really compelling and shocking and like viscerally like intense to experience that. And also I think like uh, the film form uh, really well explores the idea of trauma. Um, you can use things like repetition and um, being like locked in moments and kind of um, certain films do it really well. I actually think uh, Waltz with Bashir is a really, really good movie that does that. But also, so I was talking to Todd McGowan about this actually, and he was like, he doesn't like certain war films which feature, because you have war films that feature like the grand strategy and like the generals and all this kind of stuff. And also war films from the perspective of the soldier. And he was like, he doesn't like um, war films because he feels like they, from the soldier's perspective, because he feels like it humanizes the army. But I actually feel like, it's a good thing in a way you could argue because it almost like shows the army as like a split subject you know kind of like renders yeah. it powerless in a way no um, i don't know i think <laughs> i think i agree with todd but, really but I, mean, I don't you, know because mentioned... i'm actually i actually think the military gets blamed for things that aren't the military but political fault and actually the military in and of itself is designed to be a an organization or a phenomenon that campaigns against going to war at all cost costs because they've lived it and so you have like the way the structure of the i mean maybe it's not doing it very well because wars happen all the time but like if you speak to people who are like in higher positions in the military they will like attempt to refuse to go to war at all costs and the people who are like really fucking gung-ho were politicians you know yeah. and a lot of the people who join well, the military I mean, I like have no choice like working class men. I mean, the one thing I would say is just that I don't necessarily think that the military is autonomous. I think it's an arm for mm -hmm. capital or at least, you know, specifically when it comes to the U.S. Mm -hmm. The military yeah, complex no, is an yeah. aggregate of yeah. capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, But this thing is, I don't, you know, I would blame capitalism rather than the, uh, like, do you know what I mean? Like the people who, uh, Ha you know especially when you have it's like the police in 68 it's like obviously both the students and the police are victims of the system did you see hacksaw ridge i haven't actually no but like mel gibson is quite a kind of like <laughs> ideological you know in a certain way but yeah well i think that's what todd i think that's what todd meant mm -hmm. of the, like the humanization of the military mm -hmm. but uh, there's a scene at the end there mm -hmm. in Hacksaw Ridge where he, the guy, the main guy, mm -hmm. he has a friend of his in the army just yeah. like fall. And he's not dead, but he needs to get him out of like the war zone, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's really funny because like the way that he does it is that he grabs his rifle yeah. and uses the rifle and like to sort of like lock onto his, the, his friends, his dying friends, like backpack. Yeah. So he grabs the rifle and drags him with the rifle through through the rifle like out of danger. Yeah. And I thought that was like very interesting because it's like you have you you have this sort of like very human moment. Yeah. But you need like the film like needed this sort of like uh object of violence mm -hmm. 
in between them in order to save them. Yeah. Uh, and I just think that's, I, I think that the, the humanization part of it is like mistaken for, I think I, either it takes away from, yeah. it distracts from, from the, the, like the, the action of the military or the mm -hmm. inaction of the military. Mm hmm. And it just, you know, it, it diverts attention into this whole like, oh, you know, I'm fraternity and just like, uh, you know, and leave no man behind, which are all good things. But, you mm -hmm. know, it's maybe they're distracting a little bit. I mean, yeah, no, it is interesting. And also narratives around the military are kind of like, obviously, at the moment there's like the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which is an interesting one. I mean, I always think that the like D-Day was made possible by the extreme sacrifice of the USSR, Stalingrad. Yeah. <laughs> See, the kind of some you of might the best... actually like. No, so, go yeah. ahead, sorry. Some of the best war films are are Russian. Have you ever seen Come and See? It's no, I haven't insane. seen it. It's really good. I <laughs> strongly recommend. What were you going to say? No, that you might like then. Um, I think Jameson. No, sorry, uh, Frederick Jameson. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, he does. He he wrote a book called Dual Power, and yeah. he lays out sort of like a like an alternative sort of state that mm -hmm. is based on the military, because mm -hmm. he looks into different types of uh, sort of like complexes of authority, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, he looks mm -hmm. in, into mafia, religion, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the actual state and everything. Mm -hmm. But he he sort of makes his home at the, uh, in the military complex, mm -hmm. and he sort of like lays out the possibility of maybe us having the military as a state and there's actually mm -hmm. a couple of communities in mexico political communities mm -hmm. dissident communities uh in the south mm -hmm. that are purely m militaristic mm -hmm. and i like that yeah. i like that but it's it doesn't answer to the state and i think maybe yeah. that's the difference well it's funny you the, have someone like that answers to the state is like an arm you know yeah you have someone like switzerland that has like basically never gone to war and it everybody does like two years conscription you know and it's funny because mm -hmm. switzerland is an extremely rich country but like everybody unifies around <laughs> and obviously it's more like but that seems more like training. traditional yeah yeah that sounds more like a tradition of just like this is something that we do like yeah in, yeah yeah i, think I definitely more, think like like, oh, the like thing martial is like, arts sort of yeah i mean capitalism does erode traditions and there's something kind of leftist and collective about traditions. You know, there's like a Hegelian argument for, for the royal family. If you see it, it's like a complete absurdity of birth and contingent. It's like a symbol for contingency. And that's all it is. Mm -hmm. And you can like then use it as a technology to remind yourself of the unfairness of life and then to structure societies to rectify that. Um, yeah. yeah. And so there's something collective about it. You know, obviously there's yeah, been a yeah. sort of like neoliberalization of the royal family. And you can see it also with military. There's been like a neoliberalization, you know, like the frigging Captain America movie. Right. And yeah. I, but don't you think that maybe there's a hunger for sort of collective things to do? And yeah. the military is like, it does have this, it does have the face of something that is very sort of like collective. Mm -hmm. And because it's people sort of like sacrificing themselves and mm -hmm. sacrificing themselves for each mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. And there's something very true about that. Would well, um, you know, I think there's something. So I always think, you know, why is Russia always such like a prominent feature in, you know, against which American ideology like formulates itself? And did you see Chernobyl it just came out on HBO? No, I haven't seen yeah. it. I'm dying to see it. It I was really excellent. It. It's, it's, it's really excellent. But. You know, there's almost something fascinating and so foreign to 
neoliberal societies of the self-sacrifice of the Soviet Union, you know, and it's like um, if you like Stalingrad or general whatever the the Eastern Front in World War Two, you know, they didn't have enough weapons for soldiers, so. The first lot yeah. would, you'd, you'd have pairs of soldiers where the front person had the weapon and the person at the back didn't, and they'd go off together. And then as soon as the person with the weapon was shot dead, the other one would take it. You know, that just level of sacrifice is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, and I'm not saying like, obviously China, the Chinese capitalistic system is kind of like a horrible, and uh, capitalism itself revolves around sacrifice, but the illusion of freedom and really, you know, sacrifice is the illusion of freedom. But, you know, as in there is something. Yeah, I mean, it, do, you, do yeah. you think that maybe the do you think that maybe the part that you like of it mm -hmm. is the discipline part of it? Because doesn't China have like this incredibly large like uh, uh, tradition of mm -hmm. discipline through the army? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. They have all these like crazy displays of like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. seen those. And so, like the sports and stuff, the kids just, you know, the training and everything. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I don't know, I think, um, not to sound like reactionary in any way, but like, just as like, I just don't think, you know, neoliberalism has a very clever way of making people think that individualism is like the right thing to do, or that, you know, getting rid of traditions and anything from the past is like a good thing. But I, you know, from a leftist perspective, think that's rubbish, you know? <laughs> you know what else I really liked mm -hmm. yeah. about about the movie um the soundtrack it okay radiohead <laughs> literally it's funny in my notes <laughs> i was like radiohead and movies discussed um yeah no it's really good it's really good yeah i don't i i, I don't know if like um this happened to me actually mm -hmm. the other day. i won't even say the name of the band but i never listen to the lyrics mm -hmm. ever when mm -hmm. I'm listening to music, yeah. I, I, for some reason, I just like, I, I block out language completely. Mm -hmm. I just listen to the music and the mood yeah. and all of that. So I don't really know if there's like a connection there between the lyrics of the Radiohead songs and like the movie. But mm -hmm. the other day I was listening to the song mm -hmm. and I was like, I'm, I, for some reason, I started paying attention to the lyrics and it was anti-Semitic. Really? Yeah, Who and it that? was just like what? But it was like it was like a it was like a it was like a pop band. No, I won't I won't I won't say. Oh, you can text me. It later. was just like, but it was like, what are they? What are they talking about? Like, really? It was, it was just weird. Like maybe I should yeah. start paying attention. And it's why I totally don't pay attention to lyrics. My younger sister's like really good at like listening to. I've always been like totally like dyslexic when it comes to songs and just not knowing what they're saying <laughs> and and like say yeah. really embarrassing things when it's actually not what it is. And my younger sister's. I don't know whether she's just really, she's actually extremely dyslexic, but when it comes to songs, she like gets the lyrics 100%, she'll sing along and I'll be like, oh my God, you know it all, <laughs> you know? She also like <laughs> remembers film scripts all the time. So um, yeah. I really don't. But... I used to do that. Like I knew, for example, like, yeah. like Home Alone. I oh, just yeah. knew it from, yeah. from start to end, like yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> no, it's yeah. very, very good. I do, I, and I, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think, it was just, maybe we should like wrap it up and talk about dialectics a bit more um but basically yeah the fact that we had like can disagree and agree at the same time and also that i mean i guess maybe the point that i was trying to make with some of the things i was saying is that um i think probably weirdly real leftism has more in common with conservatism 
than liberalism and that liberalism is like a, a non-dialectical no and that in a way it's more attached to the past than the past itself as a protest to the past mm-hmm. if you see yeah. me because like loads of the, you know for instance um yeah no, i do I think that i do think that the but. left is I do think that the left is closer to to conservatism because actually um you know we're going to talk also about the other film but mm-hmm. there's a okay so one of the things that for example like like when we were talking to Todd mm-hmm. one of the things that he was saying is that he thinks that like fundamentalists really believe mm-hmm. like they believe what they yeah, what they say yeah or, and I just don't think so. Yeah, no, they don't. Um, no. So, and I think that the left maybe should. I I don't know if there's like a difference between like sort of like the cynical position. And uh, yeah, there's so I think there's a position of like cynicism from conservatives that doesn't necessarily or or shouldn't maybe translate mm-hmm. into the left. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. There's like there's things that I fundamentally disagree with, like, but. What I'm saying is that I think liberalism isn't the answer and that leftism is. Oh, yeah. um, because liberalism is more conservatives, conservative than conservat- conservatism itself. Yeah. Because if you see, like, uh, you know, I, I don't know what specific examples and stuff, but like, okay, conservatism, I think, has a fundamental misunderstanding of markets, of... Yeah. Uh, drive desire how money works <laughs> it's funny because like well they repress was, it yeah yeah exactly because i was talking to peter about this like to me economics isn't isn't like the study of economics that's Mar- marx is like the study of economics economics is like a way of finding quote unquote the most efficient way of using money for a certain thing like it's a technology it's, it's libidinal like, libidinal economy yeah so like marx what he's what I would see, say is like a true economist because he's like philosophically studying how markets, you know, markets, yeah. money, the capitalist system works. Whereas econo- in general, economics is like ways of working out how capitalism can be the best it can be. Do you see what it's I mean? It's like different. Yeah. yeah. So it's not actually what it says on the tin, if you see what I mean. And so... Well, doesn't doesn't yeah, Marx talk about that? Like the way that capitalism deals with money and, you know, mm-hmm. that's why its economy cannot be anything else than fetishistic, but it's that yeah, 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 it yeah, treats yeah. money as if it was sort of like a fetishistic object or yeah, some kind yeah, of absolutely, object. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I know. Maybe we should just do like a whole episode on Marx one time. <laughs> um, you know what I was thinking but, also? We really have to do an episode on The Matrix. <laughs> like okay, do an, yeah, like yeah, a non-Christian yeah. reading of The Matrix because I, okay, you know, yeah. this is the test. Like if you're a Christian, yeah. this is a true test of if you're a Christian or not. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you if you like the first one, eh, okay, you're an evangelical. If you're a true Christian, you know, with an atheistic core, you like two yeah. and three. That's my sort okay. of like... Okay, so exactly. I think this is, the, this is maybe the prodigal son, okay, Let's say Peter's understanding <laughs> of Christianity, you know, yeah, yeah. the dialectical return to the beginning. Do you see what I mean? You go through atheism yeah. and you return to it. Like that's, to, so to me, like what I was trying to say with the prodigal something is like, you go out, you experience and you return different, but you return rather than yeah, just like I just think to- that- constantly like, oh, I'm going to keep 
like searching or living out like my shit life just for the fucking sake of it because that's no better you know it's like yeah. fine if you do yeah i just think that if you when you do the dialectical return mm -hmm. to the beginning uh mm -hmm. you like the master signifier has gone through a death yeah. already yeah yeah and you have a different relationship but like you can still have a relationship yeah absolutely. i just i think it's like i think it's like the liberal the thing of like oh just keep going through it's like the liberal thing of like fucking just rebelling well, I do actually. I think rebel has a different. Well, that's no. Yeah, I mean, I think you're just talking but... about like, yeah, I think you're just talking about like the hysteric position where it's just like you know, like well, problem for the sake of problem, and it's just like you know, it's like perpetually combative. I think. Yeah. Well, I get yeah, that, but I think actually that perpetual questioning is like allows you to continue existing in mm -hmm. a certain way. But I feel like oh yeah, but it's of... not. It's not like sort of like that. Well, I wouldn't say transcendent, but it's not mm -hmm. a vehicle for like, you know, like real political change. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Unless you like, it's like an an interpreted version of hystericism rather than just like going off on one for the sake of it without any like real change. But like, I don't know. It's just the the whole, um, like the teenager. I don't think is the rebel. Like for me the real joy is being able to like just live in what you know okay material things aside you know anything's fine yeah if you've got a roof well, yeah, sure. you can eat stuff yeah. yeah but like i don't i don't think i don't think like going out and living in a tent and being like fuck you dad is but i could be on misunderstanding that interpretation you know? no i just, i think that that was maybe the issue that mm -hmm. Maybe and the word father, you know, there's a, there's a lot of investment into it for everybody. Yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, yeah. The, the better word would have been like master signifier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes. So sense. it's like it's something that <laughs> something that something that everybody. Sorry, something that everything in your life refers to yeah. without yeah. justification. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I should read the Bible one time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't even read it. I just like I know yeah. a lot of it because you know. I, it, did you know that like when I was when I was grounded as a kid, like they yeah, they would um they would punish me by like reading yeah. the Bible. So it's like really? I, I never like maybe that's what? why I like sort of like the the radical core of the Bible because it's yeah. like that would have been like you know the the best possible sort of thing is just like read the Bible and like that relate that makes me realize that like you know like this is wrong like they're punishing me and yeah maybe they you want know, to like, be an atheist <laughs> like Christ like the ultimate like disobeying subject yeah you know? yeah 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 exactly <laughs> nice one anyway I'm just gonna I'm just gonna look at my list of notes see if there's anything else um I mean there was some I was gonna talk about like uh commodity myth and dream but we can save that for another time, maybe. All right. Yeah. Okay. So should we? Okay, we'll leave it there. Should we call it there? We wrap it up. We we right. um, are disagreeing, agreeing, all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, until next time. See you Bye. next time. Bye.